Good morning, all of life. It's good to see you. Uh, those of you who are members of our church, those of you who uh, are visiting with us, grateful that you're here. One of our practices um, in teaching the Bible and in studying the scriptures is that we, uh, we preach through books of the Bible. We're preaching through Matthew's gospel. So we're about halfway through, a little over, maybe two-thirds of the way through Matthew's gospel. And, uh, and, and this... Um, This practice of preaching expositionally or exegetically through the scriptures brings us to passages that we would oftentimes like to avoid. And so today, uh, Jesus is taking us into the deep waters of marriage and divorce. So here is what I'm going to do this morning. Here's what we're going to be talking through this morning. I'm going to stick to the text. I'm going to preach simply. I'm going to preach plainly. And I imagine as I do that you might have questions, that things will come to your mind that I don't necessarily address. You might have nuance. You might have things that, that, that need touch um, that uh, you, you might just plainly need greater clarity. And so I'm, I'm glad to talk with you about those things. Our elders are glad to talk with you about those things. I think Dave is out of town working. Uh, Trevor's in the back. Raise your hand, Trevor, if anybody would like just greater um, clarity. If you know who our deacons are, you're welcome to go to them too. And then Larry Brazil is uh, teaching and discipling our kids in their classes this morning. Um, but I want you to know that we are available to you that we are not afraid of these conversations, um, but you can't do everything in a 40-minute spot up here that needs to be done because what happens in our lives is rarely cookie-cutter. It's often one-of-a-kind, and it needs touch and, and clarity. Now, I also know that almost nobody in our day is untouched by divorce. I'm not going to do this, but if I were to ask Anyone in the room who has been affected by divorce, either your own or that of your parents or somebody who was close to you, I would imagine that upwards of 75 or more percent of hands would go up in the room. That there is, uh, it, divorce has multiplied pain upon pain on a majority of people right here in this room, not to mention those who are outside the doors. Now, according to uh, the, the great theologians at Psychology Today, uh, I say that tongue-in-cheek, this is how they define marriage. They say marriage is the process. Notice that word. It's a process. They're talking here about ceremony. Marriage is the process by which two people make their relationship public, they make it official, and they make it permanent. And they say, they go on to say in this definition, it is the joining of two people in a bond, that's the language they use, that lasts until death. But in practice, so there's a comma there and a caveat, but in practice, marriage is often cut short by separation or divorce. Now, uh, in the words of Timothy Keller, who has written extensively on marriage, listen to this definition, it'll be on the screen. According to the Bible, all right, now we're getting somewhere that's more transcendent. According to the Bible, God defies, devised marriage to reflect his saving love for us in Christ. Why? To refine our character, to create stable human community for the birth and the nurture of our children, and to accomplish all of this by bringing the complementary sexes, male and female, into an enduring whole life union. You might say covenant. 
Marriage is humankind's most enduring societal bond and building block. There is no more widely accepted human relationship more essential to humanity's survival, and not just survival, but flourishing than the lifelong bond between a man and a woman. So from ancient China to modern day Canada, marriage is so familiar, marriage is so common, marriage is so widely practiced that it only needs Hear this, one word to be perfectly understood in almost every language and to almost every people group for almost all of history. Imagine billions of people in the world transcending time and language and culture agreeing on one word with such massive implications. That is until American culture and our Supreme Court begin to tinker with it. Um, The erosion of marriage in American culture, it did not begin uh, eroding with the Obergefell versus Hodges decision in 2008 that positioned same-sex marriage as equal to uh, heterosexual marriage. It actually began in our culture around 100, 120 years ago. But this Obergefell versus Hodges decision in 2008 was a result. It's a, it's a, um, it's, it's coming down the line from or due to our relaxing views on the importance of marriage. The Obergefell versus Hodges decision is not a first cause or a second cause of the uh, destruction and the erosion and the, and the degradation of marriage. Actually, um, it's no-fault divorce that has done irreparable damage to marriages. No-fault divorce, what no-fault divorce is, is it is a disillusion of a, mar- uh, of a marriage that doesn't require the showing of wrongdoing on either side. So two people in a marriage can come together and they could just say, or maybe not come together and just say, hey, we can't get along, irreconcilable differences, we don't have to explain it to anybody, we don't need just cause for the court system or anyone else, we're just done, we're breaking up. Uh, you might think that, that no-fault divorce originated in America. It actually didn't. The first modern no-fault divorce laws originated in Russia in 1917. Uh, but in 1969, the state of California legalized no-fault divorce. And then it, right then after, in 1970, the entire United States adopted a no-fault divorce. And what no-fault divorce, normal, what it does is it normalizes the breakdown of marriages and it destigmatizes divorce. And so I want to be clear about some things, just in my aim and, 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 and what I'm trying to do with Matthew's gospel and with the text this morning. Um, I want to be clear. By no means do I want those in this room who have endured divorce to carry a stigma or to pin a, you know, the letter D to your clothing every time you enter a room in society or enter this gathering place. Jesus is our redeemer and he forgives, full stop. He mercifully forgives and writes a new way for his people moving forward, full stop. At the same time, My hope is that everyone in this room will so cherish marriage and so value marriage that you will do everything within your power. Sometimes it's beyond your power because there are two people in a marriage. 
that you will do everything within your power to stay married. My hope this morning is that you would resolve to protect and to safeguard your marriage and that your resolve through this talk and through this text, that your resolve would be strengthened. There's another hope here because we'll read the text in just a moment of Matthew chapter 19 verses 1 through 12. But my hope is that those in this room, it speaks of those who are single. So my hope for those who are single or not yet married uh, in the room would develop a theology of marriage that is rooted and that is uh, supported in God's word. That you, if you are single, if you are unmarried right now, that you would not settle under any circumstances for someone who does not share your faith and who does not believe the same thing that you do about the same sacredness of marriage. I also hope that those of you who are single in this room who are not married would be strengthened to serve Jesus and his kingdom until you are married, if you are married, if you become married. My last hope this morning, and this, uh, you've been in my head and heart, my last hope this morning is that those of you who have been divorced, those of you who have been remarried, would in a fresh way, encounter and experience the grace of God upon you. That you would be freed by King Jesus from the shame and guilt of divorce and even potentially your remarriage. And that you would resolve to stay in your current valid marriage and stay faithful to the Lord Jesus and faithful to your spouse. You are married. Your obligation is to your spouse. You've been in my head and heart this week. Let's uh, read Matthew 19, 1 through 12, and then we're going to jump in. Um, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Um, Use, please, use uh, the table of contents and the Bibles around the room. I really do want you to be in the text this morning with me. I want you to be looking at it. I want you to be observing what I'm saying. I want you to be asking questions of the text. We need to be students of God's word. This is Matthew's gospel, chapter 19, verse one. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, so he's he's, he's been doing some things previously, he went away from Galilee and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan River. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Pray with me. Father, would you speak to us through your word? Would you shape our thinking? Would you shape our believing? Would you shape how how we 
we show up to this passage of Scripture? Would you give me strength and clarity of mind? Would you give me boldness? Would you give me the peace that is understood by your people? Uh, that, that, that hearts would be put at rest where they need to be and that hearts would be challenged significantly where they need to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, um, three big hooks to hang our thoughts on this morning. Three big hooks, three, three handles for us. Number one, uh, Jesus' intent for your marriage is that it be permanent. Number two, divorce is never commanded but is occasionally allowed. Number three, singleness is a great gift if you're willing to accept it. Jesus' intent for your marriage is that it be permanent. Divorce is never commanded, but is occasionally allowed. Singleness is a great gift if you're willing to accept it. So in Matthew's Gospel 19, go to verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, when he'd finished these sayings, this is what this is here in the context is a literary clue uh, from Matthew that Jesus' ministry is intensifying. So what's happening here is that Jesus, there'll be a map up on the screen here. Jesus is leaving his base of operations up in the north. You'll see up there, there's a little blue circle. That is the Sea of Galilee. And at the top end of that, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee is his home base of operations. It's, uh, it's this city called Capernaum. And he will come down through one of those bold lines. It's hard to discern the color probably, but he'll come down uh, to the end of where you see those bold lines, kind of at the top of that that long lake that's in the middle of the screen there, that, that body of water, that is Jerusalem, just to the west of it. Jesus is leaving his base of operations in Galilee in the north, and he is resolved to give his life in Jerusalem as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who forgives, who mediates peace and reconciliation between God and men. And so what Matthew tells us is that large crowds are following him and they, and he healed them there. So what Jesus is doing, he's doing huge ministry. He's giving away mercy upon mercy upon mercy as these crowds are hearing about his teaching and hearing about his authoritative power over disease and death and the demonic and they're clamoring for his attention and they're clamoring for his presence. And we read in verse three, and the Pharisees come rolling up on him. Now, this is a real quick side note right here. I see this a lot. There is real spiritual war whether we see it or feel it or identify it or not, happening all around us. And it is the nature of the devil to launch his attacks and to launch his abuses when and where good ministry is happening. I'm not making this up. When the people of God are experiencing healing and doing justice and doing mercy, the stupidest kinds of opposition take shape and come on strong. So Christians, followers of Jesus, do not be surprised when God is using you and when there's kingdom movement in your world and in your relationships. Do not be surprised if things get really weird and things get really difficult in your circumstances all around you. Let's be a people of discernment and a people of wisdom and a spiritual people who by the Spirit of God have spiritual eyes to be able to see what is and notice and discern and identify what is happening around us. 
So these Pharisees, they come up on Jesus as he's healing, as he's delivering, as he's doing justice and mercy. They come up on him to do what? To help him out? No. To test him and to trap him. Matthew identifies the motive. They came to test him. Uh, The most religious folks can sometimes be found opposing God. The most religious folks can sometimes be the last to offer mercy and the first to offer judgment. He who has ears to hear, she who has ears to hear, let him and her hear. Are we cultivating the heart of Jesus Christ as found in his word in our way of life? Look at verse three. These Pharisees come up on Jesus and they say this. They say, is it lawful, for, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? What this is is a how far can I, how far can I go and get away with it question. You recognize that? Is it lawful to just send my wife away out of my house, out of my protection and provision for any cause? This is a stupid and immature way to live before the face of a holy God. How far can I get away with it? How far can I go and get away with it and still be okay? The Pharisees' motive is not to honor God. It's to get away with doing harm to the people that they have committed themselves to love and to serve. And so while their question focuses here on divorce, Jesus answers them with marriage. A couple of weeks ago, the disciples come up to Jesus asking the wrong question. Jesus gives them the right answer. Now the Pharisees are coming up with the wrong motive, the wrong understanding, and Jesus answers them with marriage. So what Jesus is doing here, and this is a principle for us as well, is that Jesus goes to the ideal to shape their ethic. Oftentimes, we'll go to the exceptions and say, but what about this, and what about this, and what about this? And then we'll so focus on the what about thises that we miss like the fundamental. We miss the ideal. So when we're dealing with ethical questions, what do we do in this situation? What do we do in that situation? What do we do if this comes up? We want to focus on the ideal. We want to focus on the standard, not on the exception. The exceptions will come as we'll see, but they're just that, they're exceptions. So here's the first point. Jesus' intent for marriage is that it be permanent. The Pharisees here in their question They're referencing the Old Testament. They're referencing the law. They're referencing Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, which says this. It'll be on the screen. This is regulating human relationships in the context of a fallen world for the nation of Israel. That's what's happening in Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then, listen to this, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, you hear that language, he hates her, writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house. So think about the woman for a moment. Patriarchal culture cannot own property under the covering of the male that she has betrothed herself to, committed herself to. She finds an indecency and puts her out, and then she finds somebody else to help her, to help care for the kids, to give her a place and a home, to care for her well-being, and then that guy finds something in her, and he hates her, and he sends her out. 
If that latter man dies, the second husband who took her to be his wife, then her first husband who sent her away, he can't take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Notice this key phrase in the Pharisee's question. Can we, send, can we give our wife a certificate of divorce for any cause? Remember the context of chapter 19 real quick. If you go back a couple of chapters, a handful of chapters, John the Baptist has just been beheaded. This is Jesus' friend and partner and forerunner in ministry. He's the guy who baptized Jesus. He's the one, he's the Elijah that is to come, preparing uh, the way of the Lord before Jesus, calling the people to repentance and to change their mind about who God is. And he's just been beheaded. Why has he been beheaded? What's the charge against him? Why did Herod hate him? Why did Herodias, Herod's wife, hate him? Because John the Baptist had confronted Herod about his unbiblical divorce and his unbiblical remarriage to his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. John the Baptist called Herod out on this. He's a ruler of this area of Judea. He did not like it, so he silenced his opposition. He took the head of John the Baptist. Divorce is, and here's my point, divorce is an explosive topic in this day. Adultery is punishable by death in this day. And there is significant debate between rabbis that would shape this landscape. And if so, if you read any commentary worth its salt, they're going to mention two rabbis of Jesus' day, a rabbi named Shammai and a rabbi named Hillel. And I'll mention a third in just a moment. But this conservative rabbinical school taught by Rabbi Shammai, he believed that the only grounds for divorce was sexual immorality. The only ground for divorce is adultery. So he was concerned. Would, yeah, leave to, uh, Deuteronomy 24 up on the screen. He's concerned with this word indecency and only the word indecency. But there in his teaching and with his disciples. But there is a liberal school taught by Rabbi Hillel who believed that divorce could be taught or granted rather for any indecency. So he is concerned, concerned with the phrase some indecency or any indecency. And in his, in the Mishnah, which is kind of this expansion of thought on the Old Testament, uh, Rabbi Hillel's, some of his words and commentary on Deuteronomy 24 would include things, this, some indecency would include things like messing up meals, over-salting dishes, being displeased with your wife because her nose is too big. I kid you not. Like this stuff is in these texts and the way that they're trying to interpret this stuff. The more widely followed of these two schools is this more liberal school, uh, the school of Rabbi Hillel, who essentially made divorce among the people easy. And the people were divided over it. The people were incredibly divided over it. Um, and there's a third rabbi actually named Akiva. And Akiva says that the husband may divorce his wife even if he found another woman who is better looking than her and wishes to marry her. As it is stated in that verse, and if it comes to pass, if she finds no favor in his eyes. So he's going back. He's not concerned with some indecency. He's going back right before that and saying, if she just loses favor, if he just gets over her, if he just doesn't find her attractive anymore, he can send her away. So these Pharisees are coming to Jesus to test him, to try to trap him, to see how he handles Deuteronomy chapter 24. And a theologian named R.C. Sproul, he, he writes, the Pharisees knew that no matter how Jesus answers this question about marriage and divorce, he would alienate a lot of people. 
So they're trying to mess him up in the eyes of people. Remember, in chapter one, people are clamoring for Jesus' attention. He's healing them. Mark's gospel tells us that he's teaching them in this exact instance when they're, they're coming around to be healed. So what they were doing was seeking to diminish Jesus' popular appeal among those who were rushing to follow him. And the brilliance of Jesus' answer on divorce is to clarify what marriage is. Remember, he's going to the ideal. He's clarifying God's intention for marriage. Look at verses 4 through 6. And Jesus answered them, have you not read? This is a dig. He's putting these Pharisees on their heels. In order to be Pharisees, they got to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament, which starts with Genesis 1 through 3. He's referring back right here to Genesis chapters 1 and chapter 2, and he's going, haven't you read it? I thought you memorized it when you were like five. If you've spent any time memorizing chunks of Scripture, you know that the part of Scripture that you rehearse the most is the very beginning, because it's the first part you memorized, and as you begin to expand your memorization, you're always starting at the front, and you're rehearsing the front, and Jesus is like, have you not even read the first part of what you memorized and, 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 and what you gave your life to, to know? So he's putting them on their heels. Have you not read that he, God, who created male and female from the beginning, he made them male and female, two sexes, two biological human beings, different but complementary. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and will hold fast to his wife. And the two, the two individuals will become one flesh. So they're not, no longer two with this marriage that God initiates, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so Jesus, like I've said, is quoting from the beginning of humanity. He's quoting from the beginning of the Torah, Genesis. And Genesis 1 through 3 shapes everything in your Bible. Everything in your body, like you can pull a thread from Genesis 1, 2, or 3. You can pull these themes all the way through the end of Revelation. Whether it's eating, we, they, they, there's fruit in the garden they partake of. There's tree of life in the new city. They're in a garden paradise. We end, uh, we end humanity's story in a city, a paradise city. Whether it's sacrificial death and life or whether it's light and darkness, all of these themes, blood, and, and, and atonement, all of these themes get pulled out of Genesis chapters 1 through 3. So Genesis 1 through 3 shapes everything in your Bible. If you're a student of God's word, and I hope you are, know that. Here, what Jesus is doing is clarifying God's intention for the most essential human relationship that we have. More essential than your kids, your relationship to your kids, and more essential than your relationship to your parents is your relationship if you are married or if you will be married to your spouse. This is the only person in the world who you make a public declaration. You invite all your friends, some of them you like, some of them you don't like. You bring in all of the people before God and men to, to declare what? to declare your fidelity, your promise of fidelity, to declare that you with enduring love will serve them and that this is meant to be permanent. You don't do this for any, we don't do this for any other human relationship, only marriage. Your kids will, leave, if your parents, your kids will leave the house according to Genesis 1 
Notice, your children leaving the house is not a result of the fall. This is God's good design, that your kids will leave your covering, will find themselves a mate, will get married under God's design, and will create a new family. This is God's good design for us. It's not a result of human rebellion. But according to Genesis 1, in the beginning, two people will order their life and commitment in such a way that they share everything and they become one flesh. So you're sharing beds, you're sharing bank accounts, you're making babies, like your whole life is coming together with your spouse. Verse 6, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So what we're learning here in this text is that marriage is God's creation and God's design. It's not your creation. It's not your design. It's not my design. You invite the preacher guy to help you guys get married, but it's not my design. This is God's design. This is not the Supreme Court's design. This is the building block of humanity given to male and female since the beginning, full stop. How proud can we be to tinker with this? That cultures throughout history have affirmed with just one word in most cultures what marriage is. R.T. France says that to see man as undoing the work of God puts divorce in a radically new perspective. To see us undoing what God has began puts divorce in a radically new perspective. God blesses and sanctions marriage. Now, Jesus has answered these Pharisees masterfully, but they are determined to destroy him. They're not determined to defer to him or to submit to him. Look at verses seven through nine. They say to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, from Genesis one and two, it was not so. And I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality Morality and marries another, commits adultery. Did you notice these key verbs in the Pharisees' question and in Jesus' answer? Why did Moses command? Jesus is like, he didn't command. Because of your hardness of heart, he allowed. He made an allowance. There's a massive difference between something being commanded and something being allowed. So think about this. Like, I let my kids sometimes stay up late and watch TV way past their bedtime. I don't command them to do that. But there are times when I allow my kids to do that. There's a huge chasm between commanding something and allowing something. I make a concession at times because I'm a good dad. <laughs> you may not think so. Um, Jesus is not going to allow this concession for human sinfulness to be elevated into a divine principle. It's a concession. Jesus answers, it's because of you humans. It's because of your sin. It's because of your selfishness that I've allowed you to divorce. Genesis 3 spoils everything. Man's rebellion against God splits man's communion with his wife and with all of the rest of people throughout history and is the reason why we have such explosive conflict, sometimes resulting in the ends even of marriages. The pride of men and the rebellion that followed poisons everything. And now after this fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3, we have people who need to be protected and we have situations that need to be 
worked through. But from the beginning, it was not so. This is Jesus' word. I was talking with Trevor earlier this week, and he had this line, the intent that marriage is never to be used as a weapon just hung on me. The intent that marriage is permanent is never to be weaponized. It's a protection of a sacred union. Often in really tough circumstances, a permanent view of marriage, you can't get divorced under any circumstances, can be used to manipulate rather than to restore. The Pharisees that are following Rabbi Hillel were manipulating Deuteronomy chapter 24 in order to send their wives away. People today, and I've seen it and experienced it, can often use Mark 10, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, or 1 Corinthians 7 to keep spouses locked in relationships that are unsafe, that are abusive, and that are destructive. And there is not a one-size solution to fit all of these different circumstances, situations. These situations are delicate and they require major wisdom. And in most cases, there are mistakes, significant ones that are made between multiple parties, husbands, wives, friends, counselors, kids, helpers, parents. The Lord knows I have made mistakes and I have hurt people. But God's intent from Genesis 1 is that marriage is to be permanent. Point number two, divorce is never commanded, but is occasionally allowed, verses seven through nine. Verse seven is this manipulation of scripture, and it's an attempt to manipulate God himself on the part of these Pharisees. Have you ever seen Undercover Boss? I don't know if it's like still a thing, but it just for some reason this show is genius. It just, it just exposes like the folly of the human heart, right? Where a boss puts on regular clothes, rolls in at an entry-level position just to experience the workplace. And the Pharisees are like this degenerate employee who's stealing from the boss, and then the boss rolls in in the plain clothes, you know? And they come to expect and they come to find, they, they're looking for a peer or to incriminate a peer in their folly. But in reality, what they're doing is enlisting this boss in their injustice and in their deception. And so Jesus, in this moment, he takes off these kid gloves and he responds to their manipulation. And he goes, hey, God never commanded divorce. He allowed it. And for a reason, your hardness of heart. He puts them on their heels. God didn't allow divorce to get you off the hook. He allowed divorce to protect your poor wives from you. You have the power. He's talking to the Pharisees here. You have the power to harm them emotionally and verbally and physically and financially and socially and economically and spiritually. And now I will exercise power to protect them from you. The ESV study Bible, the notes on this, really helpful. They, they write, because of your hardness of heart should not be meant, should not um, be understood to mean only that hard-hearted people initiate a divorce. Think about that. 
It should not be understood to mean that only hard-hearted people initiate a divorce. Rather, it means because there was hard-hearted rebellion against God among you, leading to serious defilement of marriages. So the presence of sin in the community means that some marriages would be seriously defiled and irretrievably damaged, and God therefore provided divorce as a solution in those cases. So no, you cannot just divorce your wife because you're unhappy or because you feel unfulfilled or because you're attracted to somebody who isn't your spouse. You can't divorce, ladies, because your husband is lazy and likes video games. You can't divorce husbands because your wife is nagging at you and you want to live on the corner of the roof instead of your side of the bed. But Jesus does say there is permission for divorce. Look at verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. This phrase, sexual immorality in the English, it's two words in the English. It's only one word in the Greek, and the word in the Greek is porneia. It sounds like something that you're accustomed to in our culture. It's the root of the word pornography. Porneia includes adultery, uh, but it's also uh, used, even in the first century, more broadly. Uh, it, it goes beyond adulterous sexual intercourse. It includes any form of sexual unfaithfulness and activity that violates the marriage bond. Today, uh, and, and I think there's probably some disagreement even among the elders and I on this for sure, and, I, and my ears are open to them and their arguments, but I do believe that it can include, and I want you to hear this very, very carefully, especially those of you who have been and are being wounded by this. It can include serious, unrepentant, keyword, ongoing, addiction to pornography. There is disagreement about how far it extends. We have to use an abundance of wisdom and be slow in our approach. Later in the New Testament, Paul will he'll develop and give us another concession for divorce, and it's on the grounds of desertion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and again, there is a spectrum of agreement and disagreement on what constitutes desertion, but included within desertion is the reality of abuse. Here's Paul. He says this in 1 Corinthians 7. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, that he should not divorce her, even uh, that he should not divorce her, period. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife? He's talking about desertion of an unbelieving spouse here. I have actually seen this. I have seen a husband leave his wife Financially, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, 
and move himself out of the house and into a shed in the backyard and refuse to divorce her because God hates divorce. Is the fruit of the man's life and what he's doing to to his wife, is that the fruit of a believer or an unbeliever? The reality is that desertion occurs even in the midst of the, of the relationship at times. Even within the home, desertion can occur. Jesus is emphatic with the Pharisees and his intent with, from the very beginning is that marriages be permanent. And in select cases, because of the fall, because of human sin, because of hardness of heart, some marriages will be irretrievably broken. And it's fearsome and troubling territory. When I get these kinds of calls that often begin even as simple text messages, my wife can attest to it, I groan. It is so brutal to see the pain that can occur in these situations. These disciples, they respond to Jesus and they say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, maybe it's better for us not to marry. Like if it's if it can lead to this kind of stuff, maybe it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Here's the third point, final point. Singleness is a great gift if you are willing to accept it. Singleness is a gift from God if you're willing to accept it. The feedback that the disciples were giving Jesus was, maybe it's better for us not to marry. Maybe we just don't even go there. It all sounds way too complicated. It's a bit on the disciples' part. It's a bit of an overreac- overreaction to the messiness of marriage and the tensions of, and the debates of divorce in Jesus' day. And Jesus' reply was, yes, yes, singleness is a great gift, but listen to this, only for those to whom it is given. This word eunuch, it's a funny word for us. We don't use it a lot in our day or see it a lot in our day, but in Jesus' day, a eunuch was a person who was single for life. Why? Because in the truest definition, a eunuch was unable to sexually reproduce because they were castrated. To be a eunuch in Jesus' day was to be looked down upon. It was derogatory. It was Respected in society. In Jesus' day, production uh, of humanity, production of human beings was the serious and some of the most serious signs of human capital to be able to have children. And Jesus gives three definitions of eunuchs or three examples of eunuchs here. First, those who are born sterile from birth. They would likely be single. There's some sort of a deformity with them that they, were, they, they knowingly uh, could not reproduce. Second, those who have been made into eunuchs through castration. Uh, the practice in ancient times was those who were in the king's palace and around the king's harem were castrated for obvious reasons. Finally, those who pursue singleness for the sake of being effective for the kingdom of God, and this is the one that Jesus is pointing to here. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll be done here in just a a minute or two, three. uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, and then 32 through 35. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each 
has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul, here's his motive. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. That's his uh, focus. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, Paul writes, not to lay any restraint upon you. Remember, God has given marriage, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul's point is that the unmarried person has the ability, has the mind, has the schedule freedom, has the resources, has the margin in their life to devote extraordinary, an extraordinary amount of their energy and capital toward the kingdom of God. There's a kind of freedom in singleness that is used for the sake of the kingdom of God that God blesses greatly. Singleness, I want you to hear this if you are not married in the room. Singleness for the sake of the gospel is a worthy, worthy, worthy alternative to marriage. And it is a gift from God if he has given it to you. And so maybe he's given it to you, singleness, for a season. Maybe some of you in the room are sensing that singleness is for longer than that. To my single friends in the room, my unmarried friends in the room, what does it look like for you to use your singleness for the sake of the kingdom? What does it look like for you to not fritter your time away in late night shows, but to use your singleness, your margin, your schedule, your energy, your resources for the sake of the kingdom of heaven? To my married friends in the room, Please, please, please resolve to protect and to safeguard your marriage, to work on it, to invest in it. Those of you who are engaged in re-engage and and spending your time in re-engage, I am so proud of you. We are so proud of you. What a worthwhile investment to devote 16 weeks or more to set you up to continue to overcome hurdles in your marriage, but also to improve and to strengthen and to to, um, protect your marriages. Husbands, please reject passivity and accept responsibility. Wives, please reject passivity and accept responsibility for your marriage. To my remarried friends, here's where I'll close. Whether your divorce was biblical or unbiblical, if you are married now, you are married now, and that has no more rule or reign on your life. Accept responsibility for the marriage that you are in and safeguard it and protect it. The Lord has mercy on the humble and the contrite in all situations. Father, please help. Help us make sense of what has been heard. Help us undo triggers that have been triggered or to, or, or to, to let those triggering feelings of deep pain Cause us not to stuff them, but to open our minds and our souls and our hearts and our questions before you, Lord. Help us to be a people who work through our pain with an openness to be transformed, for our pain to be transformed. Protect us, Lord, from transferring our pain to the people around us. Lord Jesus, 
help. In your name we pray, amen.